This episode of The Philosopher's Nest is brought to you by 80,000 Hours. Your career is on average 80,000 hours long. That's 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, for 40 years. That's a huge resource. It may be your biggest opportunity to make a difference. 80,000 Hours is a non-profit that aims to help people find a fulfilling career that makes a positive impact too. They take a philosophically rigorous approach that begins with a precise account of social impact and that yields tangible implications for action. In recent years, 80,000 Hours have provided career coaching to a number of philosophers, including myself, and have even posted an article on their website outlining the ways in which philosophers can leverage their careers to make a difference. And what's more, everything they provide is free. They're a non-profit and their only aim is to help you find a fulfilling, high-impact career. If you join the newsletter now, you'll get a free copy of their in-depth career guide sent to your inbox. To get started planning a career that works on one of the world's most pressing problems, sign up now through the link in our episode description, 80,000hours.org slash philosophersnest. Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Atai Kozlowski, a PhD student at the University of Zurich. We'll be talking about Atai's pre-philosophical background, his experiences at a Swiss university, his research into the notion of parity of values, and its practical implications too. If after listening you'd like to get in touch with Atai, you can drop him an email at ataikoz at gmail.com. Atai Koslovsky, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Hi, thanks very much for having me. So how did you become interested in philosophy? And can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing before academia? So I grew up in Israel and in the US. So I'm international, binational, however you want to call it. And when I was in high school, I got involved in a youth movement. And this is part of the, um, originally, this was a Zionist socialist movement. And I think that was my first real meeting with philosophy. But I never knew it as philosophy. So I always thought this was, you know, political thinking or ideology or just general thoughts or analysis of reality, however you want to call it. The, the, the idea of Western philosophy came to me as a shock later on when I entered a university. That was sort of the first time I heard the names of uh, Descartes, Kant, Rousseau. I'd never heard of these people. I had no idea who they were. My introduction to sort of critical thinking was through these socialist Zionist thinkers from Herzl to Beryl to Brenner, um, and then more familiar, maybe Buber, a bit more well-known. That was really my first brush with this whole world of thinking and analyzing reality and trying to change reality in such a way. So that was during school. And then well, in Israel, you have to go to the military. It's, it's mandatory military service, but it's very common also to postpone that by one year. And that's what I did. And instead, I went on, on a volunteer year, it's called. And basically, with that youth movement that I was part of, I went for one year. We lived uh, a group of friends. We lived together in a commune in Jerusalem. And we worked basically in education for one year. Each one of us worked in a different neighborhood. In the mornings, we would work in the uh, school system. We would be like assistant teachers and things like that. And in the afternoon, we would work in the youth movement itself. And the idea was to take all this ideology, critical thinking, whatever you want to call it, that we had talked about and studied and thought about 
over those years before and sort of put them into application by living this idealized life where money is shared, everyone has the same tasks, you have to think as a group, your individuality is sort of questioned very much. And the group, that, that idea of, of being part of a group takes central stage. And that was for me a, a, a tremendous experience, you know, living that, those ideas that I had thought of and discussed for two, three years. Yeah, I mean, that certainly sounds like an introduction to philosophical thinking indeed. And I'm curious to hear that year, I guess you may call it an experiment in living in, in some respects. Um, did that go on to shape your philosophical thoughts and beliefs in any way? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's a difficult question. I don't think I have enough of an understanding of what my philosophical positions are. I think that one of the things I've been struggling with most throughout the PhD is, it's not an accurate way to say it, but it's to find my own voice. I think this is a real challenge. You know, you read so much and you, you see how people argue for certain positions and to be original, to find what you accept, not just the puzzles that you're building in an article, you know, in order to get it published, but actually to, to write something that you endorse and believe and think. I'm still really struggling with that and finding myself. And I'm not sure that ever ends. Perhaps this is an ongoing process. That's a relatable experience for me. I find that uh, the more I've come to know about philosophy, the somehow the less confident I've become in some ways, which is quite strange that like you sort of pause a lot before you speak and you're like, no, I can think of 10 objections to what I'm about to say, so I won't say it. <laughs> but yeah, so talking about your, your PhD, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your, your PhD that you're doing at a Swiss university. So you're at the University of Zurich. What is it like doing a PhD at a Swiss university? So maybe I'll give a bit of background. So I did my bachelor's in the University of Tel Aviv. And in Tel Aviv, we studied the history of philosophy mostly. So basically, it's um, the greats, right? So you start with Plato, uh, a bit of Aristotle, and then suddenly you skip uh, 1,500 years and you're at Descartes and uh, like nothing happened in between, right? Uh, uh, and then I'd, I'd met my then-to-be wife or... Yeah, my future wife, we, had, we met in Israel, and she's Swiss, my wife. And so when I finished my BA, she uh, was pregnant, and she told me that, uh, well, she's moving back to Switzerland, and I'm welcome to join if I'd like to, and uh, I did. <laughs> and then sort of I started looking for what I should do here. Uh, so it's not as if I planned to come and study in Switzerland. So we had planned to move here. And then I was lucky enough to find an international program in Bern. They have a PPE or a PLEP program. So it's political, legal, and economic philosophy. And that master's program really gave me the confidence to try and pursue a PhD. Basically, transitioning from the master's to the PhD was quite difficult in that there, well, I hadn't seen any PhD programs per se. So in order to, well, you have to also take into consideration my financial situation and my family situation. I'm a parent. I have two kids. I couldn't go and now just do research without uh, having a job. I had to actually also finance my life in a way. So part of the conditions for me to be able to do a PhD was to find funding. And this was a really essential aspect. And the way it works here in Switzerland is is basically you can apply to the university and you can start your PhD, but the university doesn't provide you with anything. That's more or less the condition. The, the tuition here is very low. So I pay something like 300 francs a semester. So it's 
negligible. It's nothing, basically. But then again, you're not given any stipends or anything like that. You have to apply for grants. And so there's a, the Swiss National Foundation provides many grants for PhD level and above. So for postdoc, for early professorships and so forth. So that's one avenue to go through. And the second avenue is to basically apply for a position within the, the chairs or the faculty. And I had seen an ad for a, a project called value-based non-consequentialism. And this was a, um, a professor in Munich had um, received a grant for this project, and he was going to do the project in Zurich, and he was hiring two PhD students. And so I'd applied for this position. This was really not what I had worked on in my master's at all. Basically, I thought that the natural thing to do was continue in political philosophy. But instead, I had this job opportunity in normative ethics. So I had applied for the position and had to write a proposal and then go for an interview. And then luckily, I was accepted for the position. And this provided me funding for four years of uh, PhD work. This is basically how I've been funding and doing my work as a PhD. Uh, as for the program itself, very, very few demands. I just had to get like 10 or 12 credit points, which basically you acquire by participating in colloquiums. So essentially, my work is not related in any strict way to the institute or to the university. Basically, I have external funding and I can do my work from wherever I want, so long as my boss agrees. And so you're sort of in the university and you're also an outsider in a sense. And that's, that's sometimes not easy. Socially can be difficult. And also to have all that support that you get when you're part of a, um, you know, a group of PhDs that are all working hard and so forth. So I don't know if this resembles your experience in uh, PhD programs, but for me, this was quite surprising that you have to do it all on your own and sort of there's no structure like in the master's or in the bachelor's level. Yeah, to me, that sounds, I think, I think Kyle, I would probably say that sounds um, pretty comparable to our own experiences. And I think we'd probably be more likely to say that than a student in an American program would be, where they have, I think, for the first two years, a load of courses they will have to take. But for us as well, it's very research driven, and I think very self-directed as well. Mm. But it sounds like you have a, I guess, a lot of freedom to research in the way that you want. And, and that research is what I want to dive into a little bit now as well. So I think your PhD thesis, it tackles um, values and it tackles something called parity as well. Um, but I'd be interested to hear, first of all, just briefly, what it is that you take values to be and what it is that you take parity to be. My PhD is somehow in the intersection between two fields in philosophy. The one is axiology, which that is the research and analysis of values, of course. And the other is uh, situated in normative ethics and sort of I'll get to parody in a second, but parody is somehow how we link these two elements together. So you asked, what are values? I don't have a, a ready definition for that. I think values come in many shapes and forms. So we have very abstract values that we talk about them in our day-to-day -day life, right? Uh, justice, uh, equality, liberty, and so forth. These are the big values, right? But then we also say that certain objects can be bearers of value. So something is of value to you, to us, to anyone. It has intrinsic value. So value can also refer to the worth of something. And in axiology or in, in, in the relation between axiology and normative ethic, we think of specifically in terms of courses of action, because we're trying to, to connect 
the, the notion of value to practical reason, to how we act in our day-to-day life. And we say that there's a link between values, reasons, and the normative ought. So these three metanormative, metaethical concepts, however you want to call them, link together this whole idea of normative ethics. So the values, either intrinsic, extrinsic, however you want to refer to it, right, will tell us whether something is good or bad, or to what degree it is good or bad. And that will sensibly provide us with reasons to pursue certain things, right? And the weight of those reasons will combine together to provide us with the art of how we should behave in certain situations. That's really high level. Now, specifically in axiology, what I'm interested in, or what people who work on value relations, which is what I work on, they're interested in how we compare different bearers of value. So, and to keep it simple, let's let's think only of courses of action, right? So how do we compare different alternative courses of action that you or I face as an agent, right? In our day-to-day life, or even in the abstract, when we're thinking, you know, in these very difficult uh, moral dilemmas and so forth. So the idea of value relations is this basic question of how do we compare the different bearers of value? And traditionally, the idea has been what's known as the trichotomy thesis. Now, the trichotomy thesis basically takes the mathematical formula of how numbers relate to each other. Between two numbers, one can be better or larger, smaller, or equivalent, right? And when we talk about bearers of value or courses of action, we say that one course of action can be better, worse, or equal to another course of action. And this is the basic idea that has been uh, traditionally held in rational decision theory and in various other fields. And parity, now to connect it to, to my work, challenges this conception. It basically proposes that the trichotomy thesis misses something essential, and that something essential is a fourth way in which bearers of value or courses of action can relate to each other. So what is exactly that fourth way in which they can relate? What I like to do is uh, to think in terms of examples. I think that makes it less abstract and more simple. A standard example that, that is used in the literature usually refers to uh, pursuing a career, okay? So let's assume that you are facing a dilemma whether to pursue uh, a career in academia as a philosopher. Uh, wink, wink, that's the right choice. Or you have this alternative of uh, becoming a lawyer, let's say, okay? And the way we traditionally think about this is we try to evaluate right, the merits of each option. We say, well, this is good for these reasons and this is good for that reason. So let's say the philosophy job is very good because it provides a lot of intellectual satisfaction. Okay, that's, Let's say that's the, the, the winning reason for pursuing the philosophy job. In contrast, the lawyer job is very attractive because it'll give you financial security. Also very important. Now, the question that we are trying to now address is, a decision between these options. Now, if we use that traditional trichotomy thesis, right, we would say, well, one of these options has to be better or they might be of equal value, right? They might be just as good. Parity says that that's not the case, that sometimes options compare in a way in which the best thing we can say about those alternatives is that there are good reasons to pursue each option and that these reasons are not decisive. So they do not settle the matter at hand. For instance, um, 
as we said, with the philosophy and the lawyer job, right? Intellectual satisfaction is good, and it's a good reason to choose the philosophy job. Financial security is also important, and it's a good reason to choose the lawyer job. All things considered, which is what we want to do when we're trying to decide how we ought to act, which job path or which career path is the better option? Well, if we say that they're on a par, we're saying that neither is better than the other, nor are they equal. We're basically rejecting all three of the standard trichotomy relations in favor of a fourth trichotomy relation, a fourth relation, right? And then, of course, we have to say, well, what does that actually mean? And how does that guide action? But that takes us to another direction. So hopefully that's given sort of a sense of what is parody. I could give a bit more background, but maybe that'll come in the other questions. No, sure. I mean, the thing I'm sort of trying to figure out is how parity differs from equality, as you've just talked about it, because they sound really similar, at least at first glance. But maybe you can give me some sort of argument that uh, you know favors us believing in this in this new value relation, if it does exist. So, do you have any sort of compelling reasons to believe in uh, this new idea of parity that you're talking about? Well, I think there are many positive arguments in favor of parity. There are theoretical arguments which have been established by Professor Ruth Cheng. She's sort of the author of this notion of parity. And there are two standard arguments that she presents. One is known as the small improvement argument, and the other is known as the chaining argument. Speaking specifically about the small improvement argument, this is sort of a way to identify when alternatives fail to relate in terms of each of those three standard relations. And a way to intu intuitively grasp this is I like to think about this as situations in which you fail to sweeten the deal. Let me explain what that means. So, so imagine that you're going to, uh, into a dealership to buy a new car, okay? And you see um, two different cars, right? And you're thinking, well, this is a great car because it's very safe and it's uh, in the right size, but uh, it's very expensive. And this other car is, let's say, not so safe, but it is cheap and affordable, okay? Now, let's say, okay, th those are each good reasons to choose one or the other, right? Now, the way to understand the small improvement argument is to present sort of a third alternative, which is an improvement on one of those options. So let's imagine that you can't decide between those two options. The cheap option that is um, uh, good for, for its affordability and the very expensive option, which is good for its uh, safety and quality, let's say. And now let's say our car dealer comes up to us, uh, the salesman, and he says, well, you know what? I see that you're unsure about which option is better. And he says, let me, let me make the deal a bit sweeter here. You know that really safe car? I'm going to make it even safer for you by adding, let's say, uh, a bubble that protects you from any collision and so whatever. And the point of this whole argument is to show that when certain values are improved, um, that type of improvement doesn't change the way in which the original options relate. And this is because or has to do a lot with what we call the phenomenon of, of incommensurability of values. And this means that sometimes values can be placed on a specific scale of measurement in which we can say, let, let's think of the value number of lives saved, right? So this is a very uh, numerical value that can be measured precisely. Three lives saved is uh, undoubtedly better than two lives saved, right? All things uh, being equal. Then we have other values that when they are compared to each other, for instance, in this case, affordability and safety, we cannot actually put them on the same scale such that certain improvements or additions to one of these values fails to actually change the situation at hand or fails to, to now determine 
the, the, the option that you should choose. So if originally we said that between the two cars, you were unsure which one was better, and now you have an improved version of one of them, well, that improvement is only on the value that anyway made that the better option in terms of that value. But all things considered, that improvement hasn't changed anything. And this is one of the reasons why we say that the options are not equally valuable, right? So you were asking me before about why is parity not equality? So what we say is that it is not equality because equality is a transitive relation, right? And the transitivity of equality and betterness, sort of the, the small improvement argument, shows that that fails to hold in many situations that we have. So essentially, the small improvement argument is an attempt to establish that some options will fail to relate in terms of the three standard value relations, better, worse, and equal. Okay, so um, I guess to push or to challenge this parity explanation a little bit, here's an alternative explanation that somebody might give as to why we might find it difficult, let's say, to compare the uh, two cars in the example you gave. Perhaps there's problem of imperfect information. Perhaps we don't know exactly what the effects of choosing either car are going to be. We don't have all the information about all of the different um, value judgments that go into each component of each car. But perhaps if we had all of the information, if we had perfect information about all of the different qualities of the car or the consequences of our choice, perhaps there would be a correct judgment as to whether car A is better, worse, or equal to the other. Why do you, I guess, prefer the parity explanation rather than the, I guess, ignorance explanation? Yeah, that's a, an excellent point. So Ruth Chang likes to write that, uh, well, maybe God would know which option is better, <laughs> right? I, I think that sort of relates to, to your point, right? If we had perfect knowledge, and maybe the human condition is just that we have imperfect knowledge. And so it seems to us as if it's on a par, but the problem is that we actually don't know. So this epistemic sort of argument is something that exists in the literature. It has been put forward. I think that the standard reply to this is that in some cases we have what's called first-person authority over the evaluation. So think about the instance of examples of taste, okay? What tastes better for you right now? If that's the question we're trying to decide, okay? And Ruth Chang gives this example of uh, eating um, uh, chocolate mousse or having an apple pie right? And we're evaluating them in terms of what tastes better. Here, there is no ignorance, right? You are aware of what tastes better. You have all the necessary information. You have that first personal uh, authority over the the facts of the matter. Um, So that's one way to sort of reply to this. I think that a different way is more promising. And I think that, again, this is not very original. This is, I think this exists in Ruth's work, but still, I think that we can, this can maybe push back at your point. And it is that we have to essentially change the way in which we think when it comes to value judgments, okay? That our capacity to judge the way in which options relate is different from how we make measurements of the mathematical sense. And this essential difference is what makes room for parity. This very fact that we are human beings, we are making evaluations, we're making moral judgments, we are comparing things from our sort of perspective, or our, we are the type of creatures that we are in this uh, Kantian sense, I think that that's sort of very compelling. And, and let me give you an example. Maybe this will push us also to the next point, perhaps, about rational decision theory. 
So traditionally, when we were thinking about rationality and how people make decisions and choices, right? So, so they would evaluate the options and the traditional answer uh, sort of presupposes perfect information in a sense, right? And that comes about by saying that there's completeness in our evaluations, axiological completeness. And this means that for every alternatives that we are evaluating, we will be able to judge whether one is better or worse or equal to the other. And in terms of this um, attitudes that we have, they'll come about as either having a preference towards one option or being indifferent towards the two options. This is sort of how it's been uh, looked at from the perspective of rational decision theory. Now, a compelling reason to think why we should make room for parity is to notice, and this is again, uh, something that Ruth Chang argues for, I think quite well, is that this basic model of preference and indifference leaves no room for us as autonomous agents to influence the rationality of our choices. If we want to allow for us to have room to actively shape the rationality, we need to, to move beyond that duality of preference and indifference. And the way that Ruth Cheng sort of proposes to do that is through this idea of commitments. Now, uh, what exactly does that mean? We as rational agents have a certain power to impact the normative domain. What do I mean by that? That we have the capacity to create reasons for ourselves to be person A or be person B. Now, in the traditional model of rational decision theory, when we have only preference and indifference, we are sort of constantly forced into our choices. Or when we are indifferent, then we are supposed to randomize, right? We're supposed to flip a coin in a sense. Now, this idea of commitment is the ability of, of that the we have as agents sort of to turn ourselves into the person we are going to be or we want to be in that sense. And how does this relate back to parity? So parity essentially tells us that you have good reasons to do A, you have good reasons to do B, but the situation is underdetermined. Commitments are the force that we have to determine that situation. Now, this may sound outlandish in a sense, right? Like mysticism in some way. But I like to think about this as the power we have, in a sense, to adjust our preferences, to actively push ourselves in one direction or another. Should I become a philosopher or a lawyer? Should I get married or stay as a bachelor? Should I have kids or not? Each of these decisions are going to shape my life, and the commitments are the ability for me to actively take a role in making that choice. Now, remember, on the traditional model, we would have to identify the reasons that favor each option and determine whether one is better or the other. And once we determine that one was better, that is the option that we rationally had to do. When we failed to determine which was better, when we were indifferent, all we had to do is flip a coin. But it doesn't make sense to flip a coin and, and to choose my job on the basis of a coin toss or to decide whether I'll have kids or whether I'll get married. This is sort of the idea behind active agency and parity is the link between the axiological analysis and the normative domain of rational decision theory. So we need parity in order to make room for us as active agents.
Yeah, well, that's an excellent explanation of what's going on in, in this in this line of work. And I, I'm just really curious, as just sort of as we wrap up here, to talk about whether the idea of parody helped you in your personal life in making your own career choices, and if you think it could help others. <laughs> no, the, the answer is typically uh, from a philosopher, yes and no. So I think that very rarely we stop to make really active decisions in our life. Most of the choices we make are um, due to time constraints and we flow into things and we, we sort of do things without actually reflecting on it in a deep way. So in that sense, no, I think that uh, we're talking about ideal theory in that respect. In another respect, yes. I think that since I've started working on this issue of parody, I do believe that I've paid a lot more attention to how do I actively shape my life through my decisions. And I think as people who don't um, work on, in this field or people who, who don't have a background in philosophy, to hear that you have this power right, to shape your own life, I think that's really empowering in a way. And I think that when you look back at the course of your life, you oftentimes think, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that, right? But I think we become who we are through our choices. And the more we decide or the more we believe that we have power to actively make those choices and to, to put ourselves behind our choices, I think the more we see that we can shape the events of our life in that sense. And finally, I, I guess I want to ask, are there any other wider applications that this idea of parity could have on decision-making in other contexts? Yeah, I think that, well, in my thesis, I devote two chapters to applications of parity. Uh, one chapter is in the field of group agency and in how we as, how when individuals come together, how do we then rationally make decisions? And I sort of take a look at whether parity can play a role there. And the second is on technological innovation. I devote a chapter to responsible innovation and ask, what is the role of parity in this whole movement for actively uh, seeking to embed human values in technology? This is a, a sort of a turn that has happened in the past 20 years or so, where we've moved away from this passive idea that technologies are tools and tools can be used for good or bad, right? to a new conception in which technology is seen as something in which we embed certain values, and then those values sort of go on to impact the world. In that respect, what, what I was very interested in is examining how do we resolve value conflicts that come about in designing new technology. And what I was thinking is that parity can play an interesting role here in terms of, well, this can be thought about any kind of technology, from AI to uh, green technology to nuclear power plants and so forth, right? Uh, value conflicts in technology is something that is very widespread. Uh, it can come through different stakeholders that have different interests, and it can come through different paths in which we want to develop these products or different goals we want them to achieve. Now, how does parity relate to that? Well, my suggestion is that we need to think of morality or ethics as something that is not abstractly determined. What do I mean by that? 
So just as um, the conception of autonomy and rational decision theory gives freedom to the individual agent to determine his or her own life, when we think about ethics and technology, we have to understand that there aren't always going to be abstract answers, right? And that parity as a way in which we can identify ourselves as specific types of people, companies, or products will allow us to put that at the forefront. So when we come across a specific value conflict between, let's say, so I give an example in, in my paper on nuclear technology specifically and designer of uh, nuclear reactors. And one of the, the big conflicts there is always between sustainability and security. And what I suggest is that an infinite analysis into different ways we can improve uh, and make it more green or different ways in which we can make it more secure is not necessarily the way we need to go. What we need to do sometimes is sort of define who we are as a people or as a company, and then through that kind of commitment, design our product. So we allow ourselves basically to embed specific values into our product by saying that this is what we stand behind. And in this respect, parity can play a very interesting role. Atai, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.